I'm no expert, but I think the trail goes this way. That was something that was important to me was picking a goal that was not easy, picking a goal that seemed out there that I wasn't sure I was going to succeed at. Then I just kind of thought, well, what, what could I do? Like what was possible for me to do in a full year? For me, it always has been and always will be about the skiing. Welcome back to Sounds of the Trail. I am your host, Gizmo, and this is episode 14 in season two. Today's episode is a follow-up to episode 27 in our first season, an everyday commitment. A year ago, Kimchi took a break from interviewing hikers and talked to some skiers instead. At the time, Aaron Rice had just begun his effort at breaking the record for the most vertical feet skied uphill in a calendar year. So now, a year later, I called him up to check in. The previous record for the most vertical feet skied uphill in a calendar year was held by Greg Hill, who is a tenacious Canadian skier who established the record of 2 million vertical feet in a year in 2010. Aaron followed up on that with the ambitious goal of skiing 2.5 million vertical feet in 2016, which I'm happy to say he reached on December 30th, 2016. As we all get ready for upcoming through hikes, anniversaries of through hikes past, or maybe we're just thinking about little seedlings of ideas for big future adventures, I think it's the perfect time to talk about big goals and why we do them. Before we get started, our one announcement today is that we are looking for 2017 trail correspondence. I have posted the complete info on our webpage, which is www.soundsofthetrail.com, and you should see it on the menu. Join us. So we're looking to have the roster filled by March 31st. Go ahead and check that out. And we're looking forward to hearing from you. So let's get to the skiing. I will add that when it comes to the snow world, world of ice and cold things, I am a complete ignoramus. So please forgive my silly questions. Um, unless you are also completely uneducated about the backcountry skiing world as well, in which case maybe you'll appreciate those questions and clarifications. But if not, forgive me. Let's hear from Aaron Rice. I don't know if you'd like to introduce yourself again, back to Sounds of the Trail. Sure. So my name is Aaron Rice, and I talked to Sounds of the Trail with Kim Chi last year when I was in the middle of doing my big two and a half million project. And now I'm finished and was successful and back here talking some more about what it was like. Yeah. So your project is really interesting to me. I'm not really a skier, so... I'm coming at this from the outside, but what I understand is you decided to ski 2.5 million vertical feet in a year with the 
big caveat being it wasn't vertical downhill feet, it was vertical uphill feet. And before Kimchi interviewed you, I honestly, I don't think I realized people skied uphill. Like I think I maybe sort of knew, but it, <laughs> it wasn't something I thought about. I grew up in Southern Arizona, you know, it's just not on my radar. Yeah, it's it's been a thing in Europe for a few years and maybe 15, 20 years. It's been big there and really in the past five, 10 years here, 10 years, 15 years here, it's just exploded as a sport of walking uphill and there's tons of new technology and uh, yeah, it's just exploding. I mean, I go out and it was raining today and I saw 10 other people hiking uphill. Um, awesome. So yeah, it's this really cool and you get amazing skiing all the time. So so basically you're using what's uh, basically a variation of a typical downhill ski, but you put these skins on it that are textured that allow you to travel uphill is that right yeah exactly so the skins uh they're called like originally they were called seal skins because they would take seal skin and glue it to the base of their ski and now it's synthetic or goat fur um and it's basically smooth in one direction and rough in the other so you can glide uphill and then grip when you try to step and you can walk up incredibly steep slopes, 20 degrees, you can go straight up and then steeper than that, you just start switchbacking and you can go up a 45 degree slope with your skis on your feet. And then you have special bindings as well. So your heel is free and you can walk uphill like cross country skiing. And then when you get to the top, you spin the binding around and clip your heel in and it's just like a normal alpine ski that you'd see at a resort. Yeah, that's really cool. So talking about this like 2.5 million vertical feet, well, let's let's sort of put that in context for what that means. You know, so how long would you say it takes to ski, say like a thousand vertical feet uphill? Yeah, so my goal was about an hour for a thousand feet, um, and that's kind of all things told. So if I had a 7,000 foot day, I would hope for a seven hour day from exiting my car to getting back in the car. So while you're actually moving uphill, you're going faster, but with the transition and then the skiing itself and then putting your skins back on at the bottom, um, it's about, for me, about an hour uh, per thousand feet. For people who are used to like the ski lift, it seems like it might be a really bad ratio of like effort to downhill skiing. (laughs) (laughs) Is is that how you felt about it or how did you decide to get into it? Like what drew you you to that? Yeah. So I definitely don't feel that way. For me, resort skiing, you're, you're fighting other people. You spend time waiting in lines and often the skiing's not great. You're, you get maybe a couple good runs in the morning and then it's all tracked out and you're just skiing groomed trails or icy trails. And what's nice about backcountry is pretty much every day is good all day long. Well, maybe I only get six or seven runs in a day. They're all the best runs that I would have had in a resort. For me, it always has been and always will be about the skiing. And I just found walking uphill, you get better skiing and more of it. So it's one thing to be really into this whole backcountry skiing business, but it's like another thing to decide to do it for like 365 (laughs) days in a row. Like that's not like a clear connection, but for you it was. And so I'm just wondering what what fostered this idea and how did it take root and then become something that you actually did? Because this is, this is not a minor thing that you did. Yeah. 
So first, just to clarify, I skied 332 days out of 365. (laughs) Not quite every single day. Um, (laughs) That's so many. (laughs) Yeah, my longest streak was like 72 in a row. And it was when I started. But to answer your question, um, you know, I went to school in northern Vermont and was skiing a ton when I was there, backcountry skiing. There's some some good skiing backcountry back there. And was just realizing how much I loved being out in the middle of the woods, not on a trail, usually not seeing a lot of other people. Or if you did, they were doing the same thing and the same mentality as you. And that just took the skiing itself to a whole new level. Uh, the peacefulness of skiing down an untouched slope by yourself in the middle of nowhere. So that kind of is what got me hooked in eight, nine years ago and made me realize like how amazing of a sport this could be. And right around that time in 2010, uh, this Canadian Greg Hill skied 2 million feet in a year. And I was following along at the time with all my friends and we kind of jokingly did the math and we we're like, yeah, you know, we've put in some 6,000 foot days, 7,000 foot days. Like if somebody just paid me to do it and I could probably do that if I wanted to, <laughs> but it was, it was always like, like three quarters joking, one quarter not. Uh-huh. And I didn't think about it too much and I graduated college and Still was in love with skiing and backcountry especially, so I moved out to Utah uh, to this small little mountain town, Alta, and spent the next three winters just backcountry skiing more and more and more and putting in 10,000-foot days and pushing myself. And At some point, I realized that it actually might be possible to break the current record, and then I just kind of thought, well, what what could I do? Like, what was possible for me to do in a full year and I also always have this little tangent but every spring basically the snow melts and I have a little breakdown need to figure out what I'm doing with my life (laughs) so that spring after my third winter I went to the desert in southern Utah and spent a month visiting friends and climbing and driving around the west and basically decided that I was going to commit a hundred percent to hitting two and a half million feet. Um, and at the time I gave myself a 60% chance of getting to 2 million and a 40% chance of not. And then like a 40% chance of getting to two and a half million. So I wasn't sure I could do it. And that was something that was important to me was picking a goal that was not easy, picking a goal that seemed out there that I wasn't sure I was going to succeed at. Yeah. So that, that June, basically I, I landed in Vermont and started planning for this whole year. And that's pretty much how I decided to. Well, reading up on Greg Hill, um, it sort of seems like he's a guy who's very fixated on the numbers, you know, who like likes these very numbers oriented goals. And that's sort of what's driven him along with the love of skiing. Do you feel like that's how you would describe yourself as well? Yeah, definitely. Certainly for me, the, the skiing is what makes me want to do it. And I use the numbers as motivation, if that makes sense. So I'm very quantitative. I just like thinking about the world in, in terms of numbers and figures and graphs. And, um, 
even if they're just in my head, that's just kind of how I picture the world. And I've always liked to collect pieces of information and or collect literal things and kind of come up with something bigger with that. So whether that's data or feet, um, that's just kind of how I'm wired. So for me, that was kind of the, the way in which I did it. But the reason that I did it was the skiing. And I think Greg would say something similar to that, maybe. I understand there were lots of spreadsheets involved. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not necessarily lots, but one really big one. One really big one. That's um, pretty good. I, I actually personally really like spreadsheets as well. Yeah. It's, again, just like some people are wired that way and some aren't. And no way is better than the other. But that's just how I'm wired is to think in terms of numbers and charts. And so for me, that's very, I don't know if meditative is the right word, but it's very therapeutic to put it all into a spreadsheet. Yeah. I remember when I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, I actually had this like mental bar chart that I had every day of like miles hiked per day, you know, the averages, the running totals. It was like this imaginary spreadsheet that I found a lot of satisfaction in keeping in my head for some reason. So I I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, talking to you like it seems like it grew out of this very natural progression from like starting the backcountry yourself and having these like predecessors who've gone before you but if you step back just a little bit this goal is completely arbitrary like the length of a foot is an arbitrary unit decided on by people a long time ago 2.5 million is an arbitrary number a year is like well that's one lap around the sun so i'll give you that one right i mean looking at it it just seems like this goal is like it's so it's arbitrary. arbitrary. It's it's repetitive. It's doing the same thing over and over again for an entire year. I don't know. Is like skiing uphill every day fun after after a year of it? Totally. Well, you get to ski downhill too. That's the fun part. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, it's totally fun. I mean, there were hard days. I think it is very analogous to hiking a long trail. There are days that are amazing and blow your mind. And there are days where you're only doing it because you told yourself you were going to do it. And I I know it's so arbitrary and it's arbitrary, the length of a foot and it's arbitrary that it's base 10 and it's, I mean, it's completely <laughs> arbitrary. Yeah. But at the same time, just because it's arbitrary, I think it still is this target that, was right at the limit of what I could do. Um, and I think that target would have been a little bit different if a foot was 10 inches. But um, I think that two and a half million feet is about the limit of what I could do, however you measure it. Um, and yeah, it, it does get a little repetitive, but at the same time, some things are just fun no matter how many times you do them. Um, <laughs> that, that's sort of reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> that you can do something you love that many times, that many hours, and come out of it at the end still loving it. Yeah. I mean, I just got back from skiing before this interview. <laughs> so <laughs> So how do you think this experience has changed you? Like, first off, let's just talk about your body. So the first few months took a pretty hard toll on me. I had what's called overtraining syndrome which I never really heard of, but it basically is this real physiological thing where your body's just not recovering. So I'd wake up in the morning and I just feel absolutely wrecked, even though I hadn't done anything that day. And 
it was just day after day after day getting worse each day. So, and what it basically what's happening is your muscles aren't repairing themselves. So they're just deteriorating instead of strengthening. And I took a couple of days off and then come spring, I was starting to ski a little bit less just cause that was kind of what I planned. And, um, was able to recover a little bit, but honestly, I'm six weeks after finishing and I still am recovering. Um, I'm just really tired still and my muscles don't feel quite right. Um, so, so that's actually been a really big struggle the last couple of weeks is trying to get energy back. Do you think it's been sort of like a net positive or negative for your body then? <laughs> Um, honestly, probably a negative. I don't, I think maybe better than, or certainly better than sitting in a chair this whole time. But if I, if what I cared about was getting in good physical shape, I would have trained three hours a day, taken rest days, trained really hard when I was training. And instead what I did was ski 10 hours every single day at a moderate rate, which is, kind of a horrible way to get your body in shape actually huh what about like your technical skills yeah i definitely on the up have gotten i mean you just do something enough you're gonna get good at it and i'm very comfortable on skis and skins now um i actually broke my hand in february and had to do everything with one pole for six weeks and that got me a lot better at uh, making the switchbacks, which is kind of a tricky move sometimes. And doing that with one pole can be especially hard. Oh, and that one time I broke my hand. Oh, <laughs> I remember when that happened, I was I was following along with Instagram um, after you interviewed with Kimchi the first time. And I mm-hmm. was like, this guy is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I thought for... It was about 12 hours where I thought it was over. Uh-huh. And then I woke up the next morning... And went skiing and realized with like a soft cast that they'd put on in the ER. And I realized, okay, I can still do it. I'm not going to be able to push myself into cool terrain and I'm not going to be able to ski if it's snowing really hard because I'll just get wet and miserable and cold, amplified by having a cast and all that. And luckily it barely snowed and it just all worked out. Would you say that that was one of the lowest points of your whole year? Uh, no, actually. You would think it would be, but that wasn't really at all. The low points came in the spring. The spring was horrible. Sounds uh, like spring isn't really your time of year. <laughs> spring is not <laughs> my time of year. Um, spring and fall can be okay. But, yeah, I don't do well on the the bumper seasons. What about your mind? How do you think that your mental state has changed over the course of a year? Yeah, in a lot of different ways, for sure. Um, Certainly, there's some kind of more basic ways, like I have a lot of more confidence now in setting bigger goals for myself and uh, confidence in my ski and backcountry travel ability. Uh, But kind of deeper than that, I also kind of the best way I've found to describe it is it's it's like when you eliminate everything that you that you 
or let me, how do I say this? Um, when you like eliminate everything in your life except for one thing and just focus on that, which I think is kind of what like Buddhist monks do almost. I was just um, thinking I, it was a very monastic life was, was, yeah, was in my head. Very. And so I eliminated relationships and I eliminated cooking dinner and I eliminated doing any activities that weren't skiing, no climbing, no biking. And I eliminated family and community. And um, I mean, I didn't completely eliminate these things, but I, I was certainly focusing on skiing and skiing alone. And in some ways that's really, really difficult. It is really, really difficult. But the, the benefit of that is then you can kind of pick the parts that you want and pick the parts that you value. So I also eliminated like, all alcohol basically for the year. Then after the year was over throughout the year, I was kind of like, okay, what are the parts that I, I value? And I realized that I do value um, relationships much more than I thought. I've always thought of myself as an introvert and I think I am an introvert, but that doesn't mean I don't need a few close relationships. And I really want community, um, which is something that there's a great ski community but that kind of ends at the trailhead and or begins and ends at the trailhead and having a community around which I live and having a place is something I value as well. And all of this stuff I knew I valued, but eliminating it for a whole year really shows me how much I value each thing. And how do you think that will be applied to your life going forward? That's a really good question. And, um, Though it's not spring right now, I am starting to feel like it is and starting to have that <laughs> that spring uh, crisis. But yeah, I'm trying to decide if I want to keep skiing. And I mean, certainly, certainly I'll keep skiing. But if I want to keep skiing two, three hundred days a year and pushing myself in the backcountry and trying to create media videos and pictures and promote what I'm doing, or if I want to maybe get a job and um settle down a little bit more and build a house. I know I want to build a house at some point in my life. And yeah, I feel like I'm closer to that than I've been at any other time in my life. So I feel like there's always a sort of hard come down after a really big goal, whether it's either accomplished or, or you failed at it, but it's like, there's this been sort of this lodestar in your life, this guiding light and it disappears because it's done. And how do you take that energy and refocus it? I think that's something like through hikers struggle with, but like, I mean, even in my life right now, I just finished a really big project at work and I feel like this weird gap, even though this project was driving me crazy because I was so <laughs> focused on it. Right. And so right. when you've been so focused on something for a year, it's like, well, now what? Yeah. You're asking this question at the perfect moment because for about a month after I finished, I was like, yeah, I thought that would happen, but it just doesn't seem to happen. I'm just still psyched <laughs> on skiing and everything's going great. And then I was visiting family and friends back on the East Coast for about two weeks. And that was really great, and really fun. And I got back to Utah and it was raining and I didn't really want to ski. And now I'm kind of being forced to think about what I'm doing. And all of a sudden in the last like two or three days, exactly what you're talking about is hitting. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, what do I do? Like I was not working much the past year because I was getting a little bit of support from sponsors and I basically just committed my life to this project. And now I 
have all this free time and do I want to start working or do I want to, uh, yeah, I don't know. I have a lot going on in my head and I'm trying to think about ways to refocus the energy and, but it's really hard. I think any it's, I, I don't like using the word depression because it's certainly not clinical depression and clinical depression is a very serious thing, but it's, I think it's a similar mechanism that you kind of start to, to spiral a little bit and you're laying around on the couch, not doing anything all day. And then you feel bad about it and don't want to get yourself to do something. And you just kind of keep laying there and you need to break that cycle and pick a goal. For me, this is how I have to do it is pick a goal. And then that kind of breaks the cycle and gets me going again. Yeah. Uh, well, That's this, certainly where I am right now. To sort of cycle back to this idea of it being arbitrary, um, uh, last year, this time of year, I was getting ready to hike the Arizona Trail. And one thing that I kept coming back to you on that trail was just this sort of thought cycle that I had a hard time breaking, where it was like, what is the point? Like, what is the point of this? What is the point of anything? And I ended up hiking by myself a lot. So I was like, what is the point? What is the point? And I was like, okay, well, I'm not making any progress on that, but at least I know where I'm going, which is north every day. And, uh, you know, it's not something I've really gotten any clarity about after finishing that hike and you know as far as I can tell like maybe there just isn't one but the satisfaction that you find in these these totally arbitrary things maybe that's all that we have to go on anyways I don't know what are your thoughts I definitely can fall down the existential rabbit hole pretty easily and for myself I find it never (laughs) never leads me anywhere so I do try to keep my brain from going there. But that being said, I think the the goal itself, this is something I took from this year, is the goal itself is is meaningless, but you can gain all these really insightful things from setting a goal. So I think for one, just the the act of of setting a goal is something and aiming towards it and working towards it, uh, whether you achieve it or not, I think that consciousness of, of going for something is super powerful and can be taken to anything in in life. That's something I've taken. That's one thing that's kind of a, oh, so what? That's kind of something that I've felt good about is it's like, okay, I, I think goal setting is, is somewhat of an answer to that question. Um, but certainly you can, it's easy to spiral into <laughs> yeah. so what land. Totally. Do you think there's something different about these goals that also involve our bodies than maybe other types of goals? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've actually been having a conversation with a friend ongoing that's somewhat related to that about like what does the physicality of, of goals or of just anything, whether it's relationships having like a physical struggle in that relationship, like what is that add to or how is that different from not having that that physicalness and i think there's there's a couple things i think struggling in a physical way is this very primal just whole body experience and i think it it bonds people together and i think it also is just a a different way of pushing yourself than pushing yourself mentally or emotionally and then in addition to that i think there's a very chemical factor that goes into physical physical things and 
if you push yourself really hard and are struggling, you're releasing endorphins and that's, that changes it. And if you're just thinking really hard about a problem, you're not getting that endorphin release. And so there's a lot of uh, chemical, physiochemical things that go into why it's so enjoyable to push yourself physically and uh, why we set goals for ourselves in the physical realm in ways that maybe we don't in other areas of life. Yeah, well, it certainly seems like in our modern lifestyle that there's so very few opportunities to be like that. I mean, even manual labor is increasingly automated. Mm-hmm. And this this idea that you have a, a even a profession that involves effort physically is, is going away. So I don't know. I just think it's interesting. It's one thing that it felt different to me, you know, on my own long hikes is it wasn't a way that I had ever pushed myself before. And I, I think kind of what I was getting at, something I'm still working through actually is how how the physical challenges are different from mental challenges or emotional challenges. But it definitely is different and it in a different way than overcoming other obstacles is rewarding. Do you have any ideas what your next goal will be? I don't. I have a couple small goals, but they're all under 24 hours to achieve. (laughs) Um, I think it's going to be a while before I set a goal that's more than a week. Um, But yeah, I I don't know exactly where I want to go. Do you think you have any regrets from this year that you devoted to this this single-minded goal? Um, not really. Uh, there's certainly like details that I would do differently had I done it again, but I don't think that's really a regret. Yeah. I think in some ways it sped up my, myself realizing the things that I value more. Sure. I could be like, okay, well, if I hadn't done this, I could have just like tried to foster community and build relationships and find a piece of land in Vermont that I want to build my house on. And I could have done all that instead of this. But at the same time, I don't think I was ready to do all that or I even knew I wanted to. And maybe it would have taken three years, four years, or maybe I never would have figured that out had I not done this. Um, So in that way, I think um, focusing this year, I, I couldn't regret it because it's let me realize the next steps in life. Yeah, I don't think that learning things like that about yourself are... I mean, that's that's really a gift. Definitely, definitely. It's a gift of the whole year. How did you make this possible? Like, how did you afford skiing that many hours a day? Yeah. Um, so when I first decided I wanted to do it uh, two summers ago, I had about five months to get ready. And I had saved money from jobs I had worked in the summer doing uh, software engineering and worked more that summer, two summers ago and saved up a whole bunch of money and basically did the math. It was like, okay, if I get no support from companies, I'll have $0 when I finish (laughs) and I'll have no wiggle room throughout the year to screw up and have to spend an extra thousand dollars. And luckily I was able to get support from, from some companies that covered like a third to half maybe of the year, which was super helpful and let me spend a little bit extra money to make myself a little more comfortable. And honestly, that extra few thousand dollars to make me more comfortable might've been the difference between succeeding and not. It's hard to say. 
Um, but yeah, and then I think another thing that is impossible to ignore is that I am a middle-class white male from Massachusetts and that grants me a lot of privilege and gives me an amazing safety net and having all that is just luck. I mean, there's nothing I did to get all that and there's no way I could have done this if I didn't have that safety net and that privilege, um, which I always feel like I have to acknowledge and think about and form my actions around. Yeah, I think it's always good to remember like what setting these things are taking place in. I mean, even if you just talk about the physical setting, the fact that there's all these open public lands in the United States for you to do something like this. Definitely. That's not a small thing either, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being in the United States is another huge factor and having this amazing national park and national land system. Um, and it's actually something that I ran into when I was in South America. I was skiing um, across the road from a ski area and they came and were giving me a hard time and were basically telling me like, hey, this is private land. You have to buy a lift ticket if you want to ski here. And it was out of bounds of the resort. It was these huge two, 3,000 foot, or sorry, two, 3,000 meter peaks with nothing on them, no infrastructure, nothing. And some rich Malaysian guy had the claim to the water and the mining rights. And he basically had privatized it and was saying, you can't just go here for free. Um, that being said, I still did. They, they weren't going <laughs> to catch me. They didn't have, I mean, you can't travel in the train snowmobiles and they didn't have the technical skills to travel there anyways. So I continued to, but it really made me realize I had heard about these whole public land transfers to private land in the States and didn't really know what it meant and hadn't really thought about it too much. Um, but while I was down there, I was like, this is insane. Like these mountains are wilderness basically. And somebody now owns them and is setting rules and regulations on them. And it's, they, it's, I don't want to say it's not fair, but it's, it's not equitable. And it really made me appreciate the public lands that we do have in the United States and um, understand all these threats to the public lands that are being posed right now. And in Utah, it's a huge deal down south right now. There was just a town meeting last night and there was these big (laughs) protests. All over the news, yeah. Yeah. With um, Um, the representative Chaffetz, I believe. Yeah, Chaffetz and uh, Bears Ears. Uh, national monument and um i don't want to talk too much because i don't really know all the details as well as i should but essentially i think utah is trying to sell off public lands to private landholders and turn it into mining or whatever they want to do it that's gonna make it not accessible to people and uh bears ears is where indian creek climbing area is and uh, it's this incredibly well used area of land that's valued by a lot of people and it would be a total shame if it was turned into something like i saw down in south america yeah and i think it's it's always a possibility so i think it's important to stay aware and just like you know not just aware of like the threats but like as we're using these areas 
And that's one thing like it seems like backcountry skiing has in common with like these long backpacking trips is that like for the cost of effort, you can be in these places that are more amazing than any resort you can stay at in the world. You know, like the views will be better than any place I could ever afford to just rent, you know, take a room for a night. And all it took was was time and effort on my part. Yeah, 100 percent. And yeah, that's a really good way to think about it, because I certainly had expenses to getting from place to place. But the skiing itself is free. I mean, once you have the gear, which is certainly a one time investment, but once you have it, you can just go and it's free and you can go for as long as you want and hike to whichever peaks you want to. It's really amazing. Um, and that's something that I have thought about before is one reason I do love backcountry skiing so much is for the freedom that you're granted to just walk around in any direction, ski any peak you want. Yeah, there's like one of the, uh, what's it called? Like the, it's sort of like the manual for backcountry climbing and mountaineering. It's called the freedom of the hills. It's been around for decades. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the freedom of the hills is something that I think you really come to understand when you spend time out there. And it's not just about looking out onto these vast, intimidating landscapes and feeling like maybe you could be a part of it. But it's also this em- empowerment that comes along with it with like starting to understand these landscapes and and be in them. The, I don't know, like that freedom that comes along with that is different from any other kind of freedom that I've really experienced in my life. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> totally. you said it perfectly. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Yeah. If you had to think of like one moment that really epitomizes, you know, peak year of skiing experience, like what would that, what was that moment like? Hmm. Do you mean the best moment or just the moment that like epitomizes the, the struggle and everything that goes into it? Ah, uh, maybe both. Hmm. Both are hard. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, um, what, what moment comes to mind, like, just now? Like, there must have been something that came to your mind. Um, or is it all just... Like, well, like, a whole bunch of different moments or, or, like, whole weeks come to mind. And so there is certainly, there is one summit in Argentina, and I'd kind of been in the same place for, for four weeks, and it was one of these peaks in the zone that I was, kind of wasn't supposed to be in or whatever. It just like loomed 6,000 feet above the town and it was this amazing, steep, tight walled couloir, uh, for 3,000 of those feet. And we'd been looking at it all month basically. And finally I was kind of, I had like a week or two left and decided to go up and try to ski it. And we get up there and the winds are just like howling as they do in Patagonia and in the Andes. And, um, but it's actually a pretty nice day. It's like, sunny and not snowing and we get up there and there's a little bit of ridge scrambling and throw your skis in the back to do that and yeah we get up on top and you can just see for hundreds of miles in every direction there's 4,000 meter volcanoes in the distance and maybe taller I mean Aconcagua the tallest peak down there is not too far away um though I don't think we could see it and yeah you see forever and Um, I was with a bunch of good friends that I had met down there and become close over the last month with. And 
then we skied this line that the snow was kind of okay, but the scenery was unreal. And I think that's a pretty good kind of day that represents everything is, um, it's, it was a balance of trying to get vertical and trying to get to amazing places and skiing with friends and, um, being in amazing places and setting little goals of certain summits throughout the year and also having this big goal at the end. And that was a pretty amazing day. And it took over an hour just to ski the run. Wow. That sounds, it sounds really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be hard to go back to a desk job. Hey. Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to think of some, something in between that might work. It sort of sounds like skiing is your one true love. Do you think it it always will be, or do you think you'll you'll transition someday into something else? Uh, I don't think anything will ever replace skiing. That being said, I think I could I can definitely see myself getting to a place where I can ski twenty five days a year and still be happy, and I'll also bike and I'll climb and I'll run and um, I'll work on my garden and my house or whatever. I mean, this is all imaginary right now. But, <laughs> well, I'm uh, asking I, you to tell the I, future, I, so. Yeah. <laughs> but I can see that happening, that other things would slowly not replace, but supplement. Excellent. Well, do you think you would have anything you would say to yourself, the Aaron Rice of February 10th of 2016, if you were to go back? I think one thing is I, I don't know, it's tough. I, I stressed about things a lot. I think in some ways, if I hadn't, I might not have succeeded. So there were certain days where I was out with somebody who was visiting who wanted to ski and they were going a little slower than I was. And I would get all up in my head and be like, okay, like if we ski for three hours and then I go out by myself and blah, 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 and just like crunch all the numbers and worry about making sure I got to where I got to that day. And I think that stress was a little too much at times but I also am not sure I could have succeeded without it. So maybe trying to encourage myself to find that balance a little bit more and try to work with people more and, um, and just enjoy people's company more while still ensuring that I was able to get what I needed to do. Well, if you figure it out, let me know, because I don't think I figured out how to accomplish the things that I want to do without <laughs> being totally neurotic for a while. It's I definitely struggle with. So Yeah. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Is there anything you would say to anybody who's considering doing something like this? Yeah, I think as long as the passion's there, as long as it's something that you really want to do and you want to do it because you love it, not because you're trying to prove something to other people or because you're you think it's gonna turn you into the next famous skier or whatever um but if you just want to do it because you love it then just it's easy in some ways certainly the details can be really hard but it kind of is just easy to do because you know you want to and the details should never stop you from from doing it well one way that i feel like you're really lucky is that you know how much you love skiing and i think some of us are still <laughs> looking for that for that passion right and i think that it's it's totally. pretty cool that you found it and it's but it's even better that you recognized it and then have been able to pursue it definitely and i think maybe that's where some of my 
recent anxiety is coming from is that I do know how much I love skiing, but there's also these other things that I want and figuring out how to do that and get those things in a way that I'm still passionate about the way I'm living. Cool. I don't think I have, you know, really anything else to ask you, but if you have anything you want to say or any topics that you thought of while on your year, over your year that you would like to share, like, I'd love to hear them. So. Yeah. I don't know if I have too, too much. I could take a peek at my phone. I'm always writing down all my little ideas, but, (laughs) um, didn't have any like eurekas while you were out there well i guess like figuring no. out how much you value things that i mean you brought that up at the beginning but uh I mean, that's not yeah. a small thing that's a pretty big thing it's not it's not it also didn't come as a eureka moment though i think those eureka moments only exist in fantasy really but yeah i mean that came over a lot of thinking and processing and just being out there by myself and um processing it and talking to friends about it and going over and over and eventually realizing that that was a pretty strong takeaway. Hey, well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. And it's been really great to touch base. And, you know, if you decide to do anything crazy in the future, uh, let me know. Awesome. Will do. So big thanks again to Aaron Rice for the interview. The music in this episode was used under the Creative Commons license from audionautics.com. Until next time, happy trails.